Welcome to the Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery, where every death had a life and every life had a story. My name is Jenny Johnson. Hello, and I'm Diane Hartshorn. So passed the morning away, and lo, with the summons Serranius sounded the bell from its tower, and over the meadows a drumbeat. Thronged ere long was the church with men, without in the churchyard waited the women. They stood by the graves and hung on the headstones. Garlands of autumn leaves and evergreens fresh from the forest. Then came the guard from the ships and marching proudly among them entered the sacred portal. With loud and dissonant clangor echoed the sound of their brazen drums from ceiling and casement. Echoed a moment only and slowly the ponderous portal closed, and in silence the crowd awaited the will of the soldiers. Then uprose their commander and spake from the steps of the altar. Holding aloft in his hands with its seals the royal commission, you are convened this day, he said, by his majesty's orders. Clement and kind has he been, but how you have answered his kindness, let your own hearts reply. To my natural make and my temper, painful the task is I do, which to you I know must be grievous. Yet must I bow and obey and deliver the will of our monarch, namely, that all your lands and dwellings and cattle of all kinds forfeited be to the crown, and that you yourselves from this province be transported to other lands. God grant you may dwell there ever as faithful subjects, a happy and peaceable people." Prisoners, now I declare you, for such is his majesty's pleasure. That was an unusual way to begin the podcast. It's a bit dramatic, I admit, but the cemetery we are featuring on today's episode has a memorial in it that relates to this poem. What we just read was written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and is a small portion of his poem Evangeline. The poem follows the story of two lovers as they are separated on their wedding day during the Acadian expulsion of 1755 from what is now Nova Scotia, Canada. While the poem is fictional, it is based on historical events that caused an entire group of people to be exiled to British colonies throughout America, England, and France. Today we will be talking about how some of these exiled ended up buried in Oak Grove Cemetery in St. Mary's, Georgia. Oak Grove Cemetery was laid out in 1788 and is believed to be Georgia's oldest established cemetery. According to the town of St. Mary's website, approximately 29 soldiers of the American Revolution, as well as soldiers from all wars fought by our country, lie in peaceful repose under the beautiful live oaks which shade their rest. The tragedies and triumphs of lives lived in St. Mary's are represented in the beautiful inscriptions engraved in the stones of yellow fever victims and those of the French Acadians who were driven out of Nova Scotia in a horrendous fashion and finally found a home here on the banks of the St. Mary's River. Statesmen and craftsmen, plantation owners and slaves, now all together draw a picture of an earlier time when life was simpler and everyone knew their neighbors and considered them friends. The city's ties with the ocean and rivers is obvious from the markers in honor of captains, seamen, and fishermen. 
In this cemetery, you will find all manner of markers from simple colonial stones with script and soul effigies to the most elaborate Victorian statues and monuments surrounded by wrought iron fencing. Attached to a red brick wall surrounding several tombs, you will find a plaque that reads, Tomb of Acadians. Acadians deported from Grand Prix, Nova Scotia, first found refuge in St. Domingo. Later, insurrection of natives drove them to St. Mary's. Evangeline's friend buried here, PWA 1936, and PWA stands for Public Works Administration. The story of the French Acadians is one that is not often told or only briefly mentioned in the larger scheme of events happening in the 1700s in the North American colonies, but it has lived in the long memory of the Acadian descendants. To get a full picture, we must go back to the early 1600s when the English, French, Spanish, and Dutch really began to make headway in exploring and settling the New World. Founded in 1604, but settled only after 1632, the French colony of Acadie covered the territory that lay between New France, which is we now know as Quebec, and New England. For years, the British and the French fought over the territories that had been claimed by France. This included Newfoundland, Isle Royale, now called Cape Breton Island, and Isle St. Jean, now called Prince Edward Island, and, of course, Acadia. Acadia had been lost and won by the French many times over before their final loss of it in 1710. The Acadians were French-speaking Catholics who had developed their own customs and traditions living in this new world. After the Treaty of Utrecht was signed in 1713 between France and England, Acadia became a British colony and was renamed Nova Scotia. It was to be resettled by Protestant English-speaking colonists who were distrustful of the Catholic religion and of the French in general. Once the treaty was signed, the French Acadians were given an ultimatum. They were given one year to sign an oath of allegiance to the British monarch or leave their fertile farms and settled on the French colony of Isle Royale. They were farmers, not fighters. They were unwilling to sign the allegiance unless they could be granted religious freedom to continue practicing their Catholic faith and a guarantee that they would never have to take up arms against either the French or British crowns. Initially, this request was granted by the new British governor of Nova Scotia. The British authorities succeeded in convincing the majority of Acadian men to sign the Oath of Allegiance by promising them that they would never have to bear arms. In some cases, this was written in the margin, the French translation of the oath, and in other cases, it was merely a verbal assurance. After the signing of the oath, the Acadians became known as the Neutrals or French Neutrals. Until the late 1740s, the Acadians enjoyed much peace and prosperity. This time is sometimes referred to as the Golden Age of Acadia. However, in 1744, war once again broke out between France and England. With the establishment of several nearby British forts, a renewed push was made to establish a truly British presence on Acadia. This eventually led to the English-speaking Protestant population outnumbering the French-speaking Catholics. In 1754, Charles Lawrence was named the Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia. Lawrence was extremely suspicious of the Acadians and did not believe that they were truly neutral to the French crown. 
After the fall of two French forts, he was able to enforce new measures against the Acadians. He started by confiscating all Acadian guns and ammunition in Grand Prix, the most populous Acadian settlement. In July of 1755, Lawrence ordered representatives of the various Arcadian settlements to appear before the council in Halifax in order to sign the unconditional oath of allegiance to the British monarch. The delegates refused to sign the oath before consulting the inhabitants of their respective villages. As a result, they were imprisoned on George's Island in Halifax Harbor. On July 28, 1755, the Council of Halifax decided to proceed with the removal of the French inhabitants from the colony of Nova Scotia. French Acadian men, women, and children were quickly rounded up and imprisoned at Fort Cumberland in August of 1755. Their homes, lands, and cattle were all seized by the British government. Deportation by ship began in September of 1755. From 1755 to 1764, more than 6,000 Acadians were forced to leave Nova Scotia. Some fled and hid among the native peoples of the area or made their way to France. Most were transported via ships to ports in England or to British colonies in America, which included Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. Contrary to popular belief, no Acadians were actually deported to Louisiana since it was not a British colony, but we will get into that a bit later. Conditions aboard the deportation ships were abhorrent. According to one survivor of the ships, we were so crowded on the transport vessels that we had no room even for all our bodies to lay down at once. Many people perished on these ships before making it to port. For example, the vessel Endeavor, which left the Minas Basin with 166 deportees on board, arrived in Boston with only 125 passengers alive. Mm. One in four passengers died at sea. Most of the ships were inadequately supplied. The Acadians were kept below deck in the hold during the entire voyage, and only six at a time were allowed to come on deck every hour and a half, alternating. The crew feared the Acadians revolting and overtaking the vessel, as they did with the Pembroke on its way to North Carolina. There was no lighting and no air circulation. Only when the hatch was opened did any light enter, occasionally with a small stream of fresh air. A horrible stench invaded the bowels of the vessel because there was no sanitary facility. The floor became the toilet. If that wasn't enough, the general decline in the physical well-being of deportees was exasperated by the detrimental effects of stress, anxiety, and total exhaustion. It is therefore hardly surprising that epidemics, usually typhus and smallpox, spread to many deportees either during the journey or upon arrival at destination, causing the death of several of them. Once these ships arrived in port, the refugees were often not welcome or were only grudgingly allowed to disembark in small groups in order to prevent rebellion, since the distrust of the French was so ingrained in British colonial hearts and minds. Basically, the authorities of the original colonies did not know how to treat the Acadian refugees. Are these French neutrals really enemies of England or simply displaced British subjects? 
This explains why the treatment reserved for Acadians is not uniform from one American colony to the next. In most cases, however, they were given modest accommodations, rationed supplies, and an opportunity to integrate with the local population as indentured servants. On Monday, October 13, 1755, two ships left Nova Scotia for Georgia with some 400 Acadians on board. One ship held mostly women and children, the other men. In late December of 1755, these ships arrived in Savannah. Governor John Reynolds was at a loss as to what to do with these people. He did allow the women and children to disembark and seek refuge in Savannah, but the men were required to stay on board until a plan was formulated. After several days, the governor finally allowed the men to step onto Georgian soil. Each refugee was given a pound of rice for the next 10 days. Reynolds then ordered that refugees be split into smaller groups and sent to various other locations throughout Georgia so that they would not be tempted to rebel against the English. However, it seems the orders were not carried out in full as many Arcadians remained in Savannah many weeks after the order was given. Many of them were still too sick from their inhumane sea voyage to travel any further. Reynolds was too preoccupied with other issues to give continued thought to handling the problem of the Acadians, but it soon came back to haunt him when he was dismissed as governor and replaced by Henry Ellis in 1756. Governor Ellis was slightly more sympathetic to the plight of these displaced people. As the Acadians were skilled farmers, they were often employed to supplement the agricultural work that was mostly done by slaves at that time. They were to labor for anyone offering them work and to receive for such service their upkeep only, meaning food, clothing, and lodging. No families were to be separated. Any Acadian refusing such offer might be bound out according to the regulations governing white indentured servants. It was soon discovered that many of the Acadians were skilled at making oars, hand spikes, and other implements for sea craft, which they found a ready market for in the West Indies. Ellis felt these people were indeed very useful to the colony, and he was desirous of keeping their skills, but wishing they would leave their French Catholic heritage in the past. Nevertheless, Acadians were offered the choice of settling their family in half a dozen small villages along the coast of Georgia. Those who preferred to stay in Savannah erected their cabins on the west bank of the Savannah River. Acadians wishing to leave the settlement were given permission to build boats. Some 200 Acadians went back to sea, some navigated north, carried by the Gulf Stream and the wind, and others went south, attracted by Santo Domingo, now called Haiti. Regarding Santo Domingo, the Georgia Gazette of February 9, 1764, reported that the Acadians who lately went from this place for Cape Francois, present-day Cape Haitian, are to have settlements there with plantation tools and two years provisions. A note in the Georgia Gazette also reported that this did not work out well for the Acadians. Of the 700 who went there, 400 would die from the heat, hunger, and a lack of proper housing. From the beginning of the Haitian Revolution in August 1791, many Acadians returned to the coast of Georgia. Many others would make their way to Louisiana, where a large Acadian population settled in the years between 1764 and 1795. Over time, the descendants of these Acadian exiles would become known as Cajuns. Life improved greatly for those who returned to Georgia after both the American and Haitian revolutions. As written by James T. Vossell, 
it was to what was then the prosperous seaport of St. Mary's that many of the French exiles found their way. Here in this beautiful little haven on the Georgia coast, the French clan gathered until it had almost become a French colony. And so numerous did they and their descendants become that at one time a parish was established with a resident priest. While the Acadians had never been prevented from practicing their Catholic faith, it wasn't until this time that they were able to build a church and hire actual priests. As time went on, the descendants of the original Acadians became integral members of St. Mary's community. They served as mayors and other community leaders. They were able to practice their Catholic faith freely, but many gave up speaking French in favor of English, as happened in many other communities throughout the colonies where Acadians formed permanent settlements. Just like many other immigrant cultures, the Acadians assimilated to an American way of life during the 19th and 20th centuries. Today, if you visit Oak Grove Cemetery, you will find many headstones bearing the names of the French Acadians and their descendants, names such as Dufour, Dubois, Arnaud, and Fox, just to name a few. In the aftermath of the Treaty of Paris, approximately 3,600 Acadians left the original American colonies in small bands to return to live in French Canada. Most of them chose to settle in Quebec. Very few went back to Nova Scotia, preferring to go to present-day New Brunswick or the French region of Prince Edward Island, formerly Isle Saint-Jean, far from English pressures. Another 4,500 left for Louisiana, then under the control of a Catholic Spain. Some were content to stay in the United States. In recognition of the Acadian people's vitality, the December 9, 2003 proclamation of Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom designates July 28th of each year, a day of commemoration of the great upheaval. In support of this Royal Proclamation, the House of Representatives of the United States of America formally adopts on July 25th, 2005, Resolution 294 and all its recitals, whereas one of which states that the 10,000 men women and children exiled from Nova Scotia two and a half centuries ago are the ancestors of many of the South Louisiana, French, Acadian, or Cajun people. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode. If you want to learn more about the history of the French Acadian people, I have linked the many resources we used to research this episode in the show notes section of our website, which you can visit by going to www.theordinaryextraordinarycemetery.com. Click on the episode titled Oak Grove Cemeteries, Acadian Peoples. We would also love if you would share this episode with maybe just one friend or family member who might enjoy learning more about cemeteries and their stories. Or you can leave us a review and tell us how we're doing. We love to hear from you. We can be reached on Facebook and Instagram at Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery or on Twitter at O-R-D-E-X-T-R-A-C-E-M, so Ord Extra Sem, or by email at OrdinaryExtraordinaryCemetery at gmail.com. Also, we have available to you, there's a link on our website, a calendar for the Evergreen Cemetery in Colorado Springs. And Diane, do you want to just give a brief? In 2021, Colorado Springs is celebrating 
the 100th anniversary of the founding of Colorado Springs, which actually happened on July 31st, 1871. Evergreen Heritage is the one that is putting out the calendar. They are a nonprofit group that cares and protects both Evergreen and Fairview cemeteries. They are a nonprofit group. It's a gorgeous calendar, by the way. Not only does it celebrate the 150th anniversary, but it is it's a fundraiser to support the continued restoration projects at the cemetery. You can view and order the calendar at their website at evergreenheritagecs.com. So again, that's evergreenheritagecs.com. We have included a link to that website on our website. Next week, our entire episode will be about Evergreen Cemetery in Colorado Springs. So we are excited to bring that to you. But in the meantime, if you want to go ahead and order those calendars for yourself, they're great Christmas gifts for anybody who loves cemetery photography. I've seen the pictures. They are gorgeous. So it's definitely worth having, you know, hanging wherever you normally hang your calendar. We will end this episode with one more passage from Longfellow's poem, Evangeline. Still stands the forest primeval, but far away from its shadow, side by side, in their nameless graves, the lovers are sleeping. Under the humble walls of the little Catholic churchyard, in the heart of the city they lie, unknown and unnoticed. Daily the tides of life go ebbing and flowing beside them, thousands of throbbing hearts, where theirs are at rest and forever. Thousands of aching brains, where theirs no longer are busy. Thousands of toiling hands, where theirs have ceased from their labors. Thousands of weary feet, where theirs have completed their journey. Still stands the forest primeval, but under the shade of its branches dwells another race with other customs and language. Only along the shore of the mournful and misty Atlantic linger a few Acadian peasants whose father from exile wandered back to their native land to die in its bosom. In their fishermen's cot, the wheel and the loom are still busy. Maidens still wear their Norman caps and their kirtles of homespun. And by the evening fire, repeat Evangeline's story. While from its rocky caverns, the deep voice neighboring ocean speaks and in accents disconsolate answers the wall of the forest until we meet again. <laughs>